Okay, so welcome back to the Gilded Age and populism. Um, today I want to talk about the legacy of the Civil War because I think the Civil War doesn't get enough credit, or I guess in another sense doesn't get enough of the blame for sort of creating the conditions that led to the Gilded Age and led to the populist response uh, to the Gilded Age. So it's often said by especially people who disagree with the goals of the Civil War that this war of northern aggression was really a fight about states' rights. And this is untrue. The Civil War was about slavery. But that doesn't mean that during the Civil War, a profound change didn't happen. Because I think it did. I think during the Civil War, there was an incredible change in the power of government, an increase in the power of the federal government relative to the states and into the lives of people and into society and into the economy in ways that were unprecedented. And I think that um, we don't see it clearly if we get involved in this fight about whether it was about states' rights or whether it was about slavery. Uh, states' rights do decrease. Individual rights do decrease tremendously during the Civil War. And that's one of the problems, and that's one of the things that leads to the Gilded Age and to the populist reaction to it. So I want to look at that in a little bit more detail. So before I move on, this image is um, of the 1872 Liberal Republican nominating convention when they um, nominated the famous newspaper man Horace Greeley uh, of the Tribune to be their presidential candidate. Uh, it turned out to be uh, a tragic campaign for Greeley. Uh, and uh, one that uh, he would be dead before it was all over. But there was, at one time, a liberal Republican Party, and I will come back to that at the end of this talk. But first, let's talk about the origins of the Republican Party, because I think understanding where Republicans came from goes a long way towards explaining where they went. So the Republicans were established in Michigan in uh, 1854 as a coalition between um, abolitionists, free soilers, and people who had been in the Liberty Party even before they were in the Free Soil Party, um, an abolition coalition with the old Whig Party. Now, the Whig Party was the party of propertied men, the party of internal improvements, the party of the positive use of government to enhance business. And this is crucial to understanding what happened. So of course the Republicans become a party to deal with the sectional crisis that is leading to the Civil War. Uh, they meet in Chicago, they nominate Abraham Lincoln, for the presidency, he wins the election and the South immediately begins to secede, which leads to the war. But we're not here to talk about the war. We're here to talk about 
the Republican response to the fact that all of a sudden they are in a war. And so one of the first things that they do is they get very concerned about how they're going to pay for it. Now, initially, they expect that it will be over very quickly. Um, there's a famous story about how people take picnic lunches and sit on the hillside at the first Battle of Bull Run, expecting the Union troops to just roll over the Confederate rebels. Uh, and of course, it doesn't work out that way. And that confronts the North with the idea, and then additional defeats uh, confront the North with the idea that they're going to have to pay for this, and it might not be cheap. So among the things that they do to pay for this war effort is they go off the gold standard and they start issuing fiat currency, greenbacks, that the government claims are legal tender for all debts. And uh, so with the government say-so behind it, uh, greenbacks become the currency of um, America, but not without a little bit of a fight. Because this is a period, although it's hard for us to remember being born and growing up as we do today in a country with a single national currency that is controlled by the government, that wasn't always the case. After Andrew Jackson had defeated the Bank of the United States and had prevented it from continuing during his presidency, we had a bunch of different financial institutions in the United States. We had a bunch of state banks which actually had the power to issue their own notes. And some banks in some states were heavily regulated. In New York, for example, there were all kinds of banking regulations that required reserves, that required them to deposit uh, government bonds um, with the state regulators in order to ensure their solvency. Uh, and that generally prevented against fraud and abuse and bankruptcy. Uh, in other places, those rules were not quite as stringent. So there were banks of different qualities in different uh, parts of the country, and sometimes even in different states. People became uh, good at understanding which notes from which banks were worth the paper that they were printed on, and could be trusted, and could be taken in payment of something and then used to pay for something else and could continue uh, to function as currency and be passed from hand to hand with some degree of trust. And this allowed for regional economies to really be strong and to be self-sufficient. Economies were generally based on the value of land and on the value of the goods produced in that economy, both agricultural products and manufacturers. But the economy of a place like Kalamazoo, Michigan, for example, uh, was based on the value of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And this is something that changes during the Civil War, because in order to get people to use the new legal tender currency, the greenback, the government decides that it needs to do away with state banking. And it does that by basically 
announcing that there will be a 10% tax on any transaction that is conducted using state banknotes. So in other words, any deal that I do, anything that I buy or anything that I sell with state banknotes from my local bank suddenly cost me 10% more than if I use the U.S. greenback. Obviously, state banknotes have no chance. And very quickly, they go away. And they're replaced by a new system of national banks, because at the same time, the government institutes a National Banking Act and says that a way out for the state banks, if they want to remain relevant in this new economy, is to become national banks. And many of them do knuckle under and do this. But this is more banking history than I want to get into. The point is that the government expands its power in issuing money, in regulating banking. Uh, of course, it also institutes an income tax. Um, in the long run, what happens is that real estate ceases to be the basis of value. And um, think about it for a minute. If you are a New York banker and you're looking west at 3,000 miles of real estate that is only going to get more valuable as time goes on, there's got to be a way to stop that. Well, stopping state banking and preventing the new banks from making loans on property is one way to do that. And so that's what they do. And all of a sudden, we go from regional economic self-sufficiency and sort of freestanding economies in these places based on the value that is inherent there in the land and the value that is created there through agriculture and through manufacturing and through labor. This is all replaced by a new finance capitalism uh, and its center actually turns out to be New York City. So this is the beginning of an era when banking houses like the house of J.P. Morgan and Company become increasingly important. And as we'll see, that will contribute to the Gilded Age and to the resentment and reaction against it. Another thing that the Lincoln administration does, of course, to promote this ideal of um, free soil and free labor and small d democracy of independent farmers who are beholden to no one and uh, are self-sufficient is the Homestead Act of 1862. Uh, between 1862 and 1934, actually, when it ends, um, the Homestead Act gives away 180 million acres of farmland in America, 160 acres at a time, um, to about 1.6 million homesteaders. And the deal is basically that you go out to a parcel of land uh, that you're homesteading, you live on it, and you improve it for five years, and then you get the deed. Uh, if you don't, live on it and improve it for five years, then you either lose access to it or you have to pay for it. Uh, so this changes the frontier um, immensely and people 
take advantage of this uh, through many generations because it lasts again from 1862 to uh, 1934. Additionally, uh, at about the same time, a Vermont congressman named Justin Morrill proposes that we fund agricultural and mechanical or technical colleges uh, with land grants. And so the Morrill Act is passed and the land grant colleges and universities begin to form. Um, they do this actually by expropriating 10.7 million acres of land from 245 tribal nations and dividing it into 80,000 parcels throughout the country. Uh, each state gets a grant of 30,000 acres for every member of Congress that they have. Uh, and the logic behind that is you get members of Congress based on your population. So they take a look at the population census of 1860, and they say that for each congressman that each state qualifies for in that census, they get 30,000 acres of land. And um, you can do whatever you want with that land. You can establish an agricultural or technical college on it, uh, or you can sell it and fund an endowment to uh, operate that college. Uh, so there are a number of different ways that these lands get used. Um, the Confederate States, of course, are initially blocked from taking advantage of this because they're fighting a war against the United States. But after the Civil War, they get in on the deal as well. And so A&M universities are um, the result of this, as well as um, colleges like the University of Minnesota, University of Massachusetts, University of California. But of course, the biggest and most consequential legislation, uh, probably uh, aside from the Emancipation Proclamation of the Lincoln administration, is the Pacific Railroad Act. So the Pacific Railroad Act, also of 1862, begins the process of the federal government granting lands, public lands, directly to corporations. Previously, uh, land grants from the federal government had been made to state governments for the benefit of corporations. Um, this legislation is signed into law by President Lincoln on July 1st of 1862, um, authorizing not only extensive land grants in the Western United States, but also the issuing of 30-year government bonds uh, at 6% to fund two companies, the Union Pacific Railroad Company and the Central Pacific Railroad Company. And these two corporations are chartered to build a continuous transcontinental railroad between the eastern side of the Missouri River at Council Bluffs, uh, Iowa, which is opposite from Omaha, Nebraska, and um, the Sacramento River in Sacramento, California, uh, which, as you may recall, is near Sutter Mill, where the California Gold Rush began in 1849. Uh, California Gold and Nevada Silver is one of the important reasons why it's very important to the Union to bring the West into the Union as quickly 
and as effectively as possible. Um, so the government gives big land grants and big government bond issues to these two companies, um, and they begin building 1,800 miles of railroad track, which is finally completed seven years later at Promontory Point near Ogden, Utah, with the nailing of the Golden Spike. Now, this was not Abraham Lincoln's first experience with railroads or with railroad land grants. Uh, his first experience was as a lawyer in Illinois with the Illinois Central Railroad Company. Um, the Illinois Central was chartered by the Illinois General Assembly in February of 1851. Uh, Senator Stephen Douglas and lawyer Abraham Lincoln were both Illinois Central men and uh, both lobbied for it. Douglas owned land near the terminal in Chicago and um, Lincoln was a private attorney, but the railroad company was his biggest client. On its completion in 1856, the Illinois Central would be the longest railroad in the world. Its main line went from Cairo, Illinois, at the southern tip of the state on the Mississippi River, to Galena in the northwestern corner. Um, the idea was to transport the lead that was mined in Galena down to the Mississippi River in Cairo, past the rapids that prevented river travel between Galena and uh, Cairo. So a branch line went um, from Centralia, which was named after the Illinois Central Railroad itself, to the rapidly growing city of Chicago, to a part of town that, as I already said, Stephen Douglas had a financial interest in. The Illinois Central was the first land-grant railroad company. And the way the land was granted was in a checkerboard style. Um, and it was a pattern that was actually uh, devised by Stephen Douglas himself. He drew the map. And in each of the townships, every other section of land um, in a checkerboard pattern would be granted to the railroad company for development or for sale. And obviously, uh, if you're right next to where the railroad is going through, the land is going to appreciate tremendously. And this is something that we should remember about railroad land grants, especially in the Union and Central Pacific tale. Um, the railroads received an estimated 185 million acres of land from the government at no charge. Um, land grants were made directly to the companies, usually, occasionally through state government intermediaries, the way it had been before. Um, the federal government actually offered 20 square miles to the railroad companies for every mile of track that they laid in the territories, and 10 square miles of land for each mile of track laid in the already existing states. Uh, this led to a proliferation of rail lines being built. Not only the 1,800 miles that 
were needed to connect Sacramento with the Missouri River, but a bunch of lines that um, ultimately, in a lot of cases, led to bankruptcies because they were built not because they could be justified on the basis of the passenger traffic or the freight that they would carry, but because they could be justified on the basis of the 20 square miles of land that was being given to the railroad company to build them. Now this quickly became a political issue. 185 million acres of land was given by the government to corporations. And that was the equivalent of over 371,000 farms of 160 acres each that were not given to homesteaders. Um, and if you valued the land at $2 an acre, it was also the equivalent of over a quarter of a billion dollars. So that's a lot of money in the 1880s. So there's a lot of political resistance to this idea. And then there's corruption. The most egregious example of this is the Credit Mobiere scandal, which broke in 1872, the year of the presidential election that I mentioned earlier. Um, in a nutshell, the Credit Mobiere was a contracting company that was created by the Union Pacific executives uh, to be the prime contractor, and as, as a matter of fact, the sole contractor of the building of the Union Pacific Railroad. Um, the railroad itself cost probably about $50 million to build. But the Credit Mobiliere billed $94 million for the building of the line. And the Union Pacific executives stuck the excess $44 million in their pockets. Um, then actually part of that excess cash uh, and about $9 million in discounted stock was then used to bribe several Washington politicians uh, for laws and funding and regulatory rulings um, that were favorable to the Union Pacific. The scandal nearly bankrupted the Union Pacific and uh, it impacted the careers of many politicians, although it didn't end as many of them as it may have needed to. Uh, in 1872, after uh, the New York Sun newspaper broke an expose about this, um, because most of the uh, egregious criminal activity happened between 1864 and 1867, uh, but once it became known in 1872, the House of Representatives uh, submitted the names of nine politicians uh, to the Senate for investigation. And those men were a representative named William Allison from Iowa, a former senator named James Bayard of Delaware, a former representative George Boutwell of Massachusetts, uh, Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, the boss of New York machine politics, uh, Senator James Harlan of Iowa, who was already retiring. Uh, Senator James Logan of Illinois. Representative James W. Patterson of New Hampshire. Uh, Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, who at that time was also Ulysses S. Grant's running mate for vice president. Um, and the vice president 
Schuyler Colfax. Uh, the Department of Justice then investigated, and during the investigation, the government found that the company, the Credit Mobile Company, had given shares to more than 30 additional politicians from both parties, including James A. Garfield, as well as Colfax, Patterson, and Wilson. Uh, James Garfield denied the charges and uh, then went on to run for president and win in 1880, uh, becoming president of the United States. Uh, in the uh, testimony that I talked about a little bit earlier in the week from Albert May Todd when he ranted on the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, Todd alleged that within hours of Garfield's nomination for president, all of the copies of the 1873 congressional reports mysteriously disappeared. So the term for this corruption and political incompetence and fraud uh, during the administration of Ulysses S. Grant is simply Grantism, unfortunately. Uh, Grant's presidency, which lasted from 1869 to 1877, was riddled with scandals and fraud and self-dealing uh, throughout the administration, uh, including in his cabinet, which was in a continual state of churn because people kept getting in trouble. Uh, among these scandals were um, Black Friday corruption in the Department of the Interior, the Sanborn incident, and the Whiskey Ring. Uh, the Credit Mobiere scandal, um, although it was exposed during um, Grant's tenure, was not really considered a Grant scandal, a Grantism scandal. The final element of political corruption was uh, called the spoils system, um, from the old adage that to the victor goes the spoils. Um, Throughout most of the 19th century, beginning at least during the uh, presidency of Andrew Jackson, uh, the political parties that won national elections basically got to appoint all of their own people to all of the important public and civil service posts. Um, and so this was actually an opportunity um, as the, the Grant administration demonstrated such an egregious, egregious uh, problem with this issue, this was an opportunity for the Democratic Party to uh, begin to reposition itself, not as the party of secession and the Civil War and slavery, but as the party that advocated for civil service reform. Um, but before it did that, actually, the liberal Republican Party tried to challenge the mainstream Republican Party and tried to um, move it in a more positive direction. So if you recall, the Republican Party had begun in the late 1850s and had come to power in 1860 as a coalition between abolitionists from the Free Soil and the Liberty Parties and Whigs who became the proponents and the friends of big business. The liberal Republicans 
were not as interested in promoting big business. Uh, they believed that the Confederacy had been punished and that maybe it was time to ease up on Reconstruction. Um, they may have been wrong about that, uh, but that's not the point right now. Um, they were made up of people like Horace Greeley, the famous editor of the Tribune, uh, Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, Lyman Trumbull of Illinois, uh, Cassius Marcellus Clay of Kentucky, and Charles Francis Adams of Massachusetts. Um, they wanted a thorough reform of the civil service. Uh, they said that was one of the most pressing necessities of the hour. Um, many of them also in the Liberal Republican Party wanted to revise the tariffs downward, uh, believing that powerful industry groups had unfairly won the protection of the government to keep the prices of their products high, uh, which basically came at the expense of the consumers of those products. They nominated, as I said earlier, they nominated Horace Greeley, the famous newspaper man, the famous supporter of the Union against the Confederacy, the famous advocate for um, Abraham Lincoln, to the presidency. Um, he ran as the opposition candidate against Ulysses Grant and uh, his criminal vice presidential candidate, Wilson. Um, because there wasn't a Democratic Party in place to challenge the Republicans in that national election. So the liberal Republicans challenged the mainstream Republican Party. Um, unfortunately, it didn't turn out well for Greeley. Uh, his wife died five days before the election, and Greeley himself died about 30 days later before the Electoral College had even met to go over the vote totals. Um, Grant ultimately won in a landslide. And, um, and then, of course, uh, James A. Garfield, who was also implicated in the Credit Mobile scandal, um, was nominated four years later and became president in the election of 1880. So in a sense, it's an interesting story of what might have been had the people who wanted to reform the Republican Party from within inside been a little bit more successful. Uh, that didn't happen. The Republican Party just became more of a tool of the moneyed elite. And the result was, of course, the rest of the Gilded Age and the populist response against it. Uh, so we'll continue talking about that. But I thought this was an interesting opportunity to see some of the ways that the Civil War set the scene and planted the seeds that became the Gilded Age and that became the reaction against it. So I hope that was helpful. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next time.